Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hi, I'm Ben Jackson, in for Alyssa Milano, who is out of the country this week on a mission with UNICEF. Before she left, she had a conversation with Dr. Nicholas Carderis. Dr. K is an Ivy League-educated psychologist, one of the country's foremost addiction and mental health experts, and the best-selling author of Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids, and How to Break the Trance. His new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis, is now available. So many of us, myself included, keep it real, have spent too much time this past year in the digital space, whether it's Zoom calls for school or work or to catch up with loved ones or maybe even binging on our favorite shows during lockdowns. More recently, I did have a hate account on Instagram. They um, like told me to kill myself and told me that I like was ugly and I was like a clown. There's been a rise in symptoms of Tourette syndrome, mostly among teen girls. And the social media app TikTok might be to blame. We're learning chilling new details about the teenager who carried out the Texas massacre. 18-year-old Salvador Ramos posted messages on social media hinting about his evil plan. Hi, I'm Dr. Nicholas Cardaris, and I am passionate about fighting to help reclaim our humanity and our mental health from the dehumanization and enslavement of big tech and its Frankenstein monster, social media. Sorry. Not sorry. Dr. K, thank you so much for being with us today. I guess let's start with just an overview of mental health in America. So mental health in America is the most radioactive that it's ever been since the recorded metrics of psychiatric illness. Before COVID, this is something I really like to point out to people because I talk about this a lot. I research this a lot. I treat this a lot. We were the most on fire psychiatrically in 2019 before COVID since we've been reporting mental health metrics. So we had the highest rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, overdoses, ADHD, loneliness. Something was going wrong as a species because we were very unwell. And what was really interesting was we had been increasing the psych meds that we were giving. We had tripled and almost quadrupled the antidepressants that we were dispensing. And yet depression was outpacing our pharmaceuticals. And so depression is the number one chronic illness in the world, according to the World Health Organization. So I was looking at it like, what's going on in our society that the more technologically advanced we're getting, the more psychiatrically and mentally unwell we've become. And then COVID only acted as a nuclear bomb on an already bad situation. Then COVID just exacerbated everything. So the quarantines and isolation of COVID we saw a screen time doubled and depression tripled in some cases. And then suicide rates went up, of course, and overdoses went up, of course. So kerosene to the fire. It's funny because, you know, I have um, generalized anxiety disorder with panic attacks and have suffered pretty severely the last, I would say, 10 years. But when COVID came, I was pretty like mellow. And when I spoke to my therapist about it, he was like, it's because everyone is sort of functioning at your normal frequency. And you could look around and be like, see, I told you everything is chaotic. And there was a way to relate to people that made me feel less othered because everyone was going through the same thing. But I really am interested in this research, not only because of COVID, but 
why and how it's changed in the last 15 years? And does that coincide with when social media took hold? By the way, I think your therapist made a lot of sense. I think it leveled the playing field so people that felt different. And by the way, I could talk about my past. I've had my share of struggles, and that's why I do what I do, because usually when you've had to get your ass kicked by something, you try to make lemonade out of it by helping other people. And I admire your advocacy, by the way. I'm a few years older than you, so I remember you from way back, but I remember everything from the Ryan White piece that you did, where you really humanized that stigma, that poor boy, and you really did some really great work there. But I was a fan of yours because I was a taxi fan. So I like Tony Danza. So I go way back to then. You'll be happy to know that the Who's the Boss reboot is actually moving. We are moving right along with that. Very cool. I'm thrilled to hear that. I was just showing my kids some taxi reruns literally two nights ago. I was showing my kids taxi reruns and we'll get to Who's the Boss. But I admire people who take some rough things in their lives and really try to empower people who are struggling. And I think your therapist had a lot of merit with that. I also think though that if you have social anxiety or you struggle with issues and you're able to cocoon inside, you're lowering the temperature of some of the stressors that might be kicking it up. So people were able to feel safe in a certain way. Even though the monster was on the outside lurking, we were able to feel safe indoors. Yeah. And I think because uh, I wasn't traveling, I wasn't leaving the kids for work. I think there were a lot of moving parts that actually benefited me. But I am definitely surrounded by some people who who had a really hard time with the isolation. And I get that. Yeah, the last 15 years, I think unquestionably, we can correlate and really connect the dots with social media and our technological love affair. You know, a phrase that I like is we've gone mad for our devices, our devices are driving us mad because it's a direct line. If you look at some of the metrics from when the iPhone came out in 2007 and when the iPad in 2010 than social media. I wrote a book a few years ago called Glow Kids, where I was really looking at the clinical impacts of screen time on kids. And I was shocked that people weren't really noticing it. A new report looks at how digital devices are taking a toll on kids and families. The report issued yesterday by Common Sense Media found half of all young people feel they are addicted to their devices. Almost 60% of adults think their kids are addicted too. And a third of parents and teens say they argue daily about screen time. You know, it was really under people's radar that, wow, our, our kids were really getting habituated in a really unhealthy way. Call it an addiction, call it an habituation to the screen time. And their screen time was having some side effects. So I wrote an op-ed for the New York Post called Digital Heroin, where I really was beginning to write about this thing that people really weren't looking at. Because I think what happened is those of us who were the adults in the room, I think we were so awestruck by our devices. We were so in love with our technology that we weren't quite noticing the byproducts of what it was doing to maybe more vulnerable people, to kids, to teenagers. We were like, wow, look how cool this iPhone is. And so in the meantime, we started seeing that there was a shadow side to some of this cool tech that we were all getting in love with. And then you started seeing it. You started seeing the increased rates of depression and isolation. And ironically, when social media started swallowing up the world, that's when people started becoming more and more antisocial and the loneliness rates started going up. And what I always find interesting is social media was sold to us, the Kool-Aid that it was sold to us as it was going to be this amazing connector for a social species like human beings that we are. Social media was going to be the lubricant and it was going to really enhance our mental health because it was going to connect the world. And in fact, what we've seen is it's done the opposite. It's led to a stereotype of the isolated screen staring alone, screen dependent, because we know that two of the biggest drivers of depression are being sedentary and being isolated. And when you think about what social media does is it keeps you by virtue of the algorithms trying to keep us engaged on screen as long as possible, where the end game for social media is sit at your screen for as long as possible, for as long as you can be under the illusion that you're getting social connection, but we're not getting social connection in the mode that we really needed to be social emotionally. So it's sort of an illusion. So we're getting spoon-fed faux socialization in a way that's actually making us more pronouncedly depressed and isolated and unwell. And meanwhile, we think that we're connected. And meanwhile, it's habituating. And so the more depressed and isolated we feel like any other addiction, the more of the toxin that you need to escape that feeling of discomfort that you're feeling. I'm an addiction psychologist by training, and my background is such 
I had a colorful early 20s that led me to have my own addiction issues. And I became an addiction psychologist. And with any addiction, we know that it's a vicious cycle. You fall down an addictive rabbit hole, and then you go into the self-loathing shame cycle. And the more you, you hate yourself, the more you need to escape into the addiction, because that's the only thing that helps numb you and escape your pain. And I think that's what's happened in a lot of our digital escapism. Round and round we go, we hate our lives. And the more we hate our lives, the more we escape in digital fantasy worlds. And are there good studies linking that change to social media? And if so, what do they say? So the number one dynamic, the number one driver of this depressive effect is called the social comparison effect. And the first three studies really look specifically at Facebook. And interestingly, what they found was the more friends you had on Facebook, the higher of a correlation you had to be clinically depressed. More friends on Facebook equaled more depression. And the reason was this social comparison effect, because when you think about it, let's be honest about what Facebook is, right? You're posting Typically, people post their idealized external selves. It's, here's me on a happy vacation photo. Here's my wonderful kids. We're not posting, here's me having a shitty day. We're not posting our down days. So if I'm going through a rough period or a rough day or a rough month or year, and now I have 10 friends acting as a sort of reflective, almost a funhouse mirror reflecting back on me, now I've got 10 people's lives that make me feel worse about my own life. Now I've got 100 people's lives, 1,000 people's lives. The more friends I have, the more it reflects back on and amplifies my sense of, wow, isn't, maybe my life isn't so hot. So more friends on social media was equaling an increased social comparison effect. Now you layer in the influencer dynamic, right? And you've got the Kylie Jenner effect where you have people's curated, we want to call them fantasy lives. You have influencers who are like renting seats and private jets to curate an image of a certain lifestyle. So now you're that kid sitting in the basement in Dubuque, and you're really thinking your life sucks. Artificial curation of an idealized life only makes people feel worse about their own lives. And yes, there is plenty of research that shows that social comparison dynamic. Makes sense. It becomes everything that we are not or it becomes about everything that we do not have. But there's more to that. If you look at the big tech social media playbooks, it's a three-step process. Step one is habituation. Step one is we've got to get people hooked. And everybody from Tristan Harris, former Google guy, has talked very openly about this social dilemma documentary, talked openly about this, because that was the one where you know guys like me started noticing. I was one of the first two or three psychologists in the country that said, hey, um, our love affair with technology, maybe it's causing some mental health issues. What is the problem in the tech industry? We've got tech addiction, polarization, election manipulation, outrageification, vanityification, teens' mental health, bots. I'm going to claim to you that there's actually one thing that is driving all these problems. And it has to do with something that E.O. Wilson said, which is that the real problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And then we had social dilemma where the people who were creating the technology were saying, hey, look, this was by design. This is habituating by design, the dopamine reward loop that work, the likes and the things that keep you coming back for more, the algorithm-fueled things that are keeping you coming back. So the step one in the process was addiction. And then once you're hooked, then step two becomes, now I've got you dependent on this. Now, like any addiction, you get weakened by the addiction. And so I'm using a phrase that I think is very apt. I talk about our psychological immune system. We all develop a psychological immune system as we grow up. Some of us have a more robust psychological immune system than others. And quite honestly, I'm a big believer in adversity, strengthening our immune system. I know you've been through some stuff. I've been through some stuff. There's a breaking point where we can get broken by adversity, but we also know that the more stuff you go through, you develop a sense of resilience, you develop a sense of empowerment, right? And so if you're addicted and you're dependent on something, you tend to become more psychologically unwell. You tend to become more empty and your life lacks meaning. And now there's a void, you know, every addict I've worked with addiction and I'm full disclosure, I'm a recovering addict for 22 years. Any addict feels empty, and then you need more of the thing that's destroying your life to not feel empty, and it's a vicious cycle. And it's true with technology. The technology is robbing you of your real life, 
but now I need more of it to fill the void of the emptiness that I feel. And so many young people that I've treated and I've worked with, they want meaning in their life. They want a sense of something. They want a sense of empowerment. And it's not available to them in the world that we live in for a variety of reasons. And so now, rather than getting drunk or high, as we used to maybe in our day or back in yesteryear where the escapist realities were drugs and alcohol, now I can live, you know, I could live, I could escape through gaming and social media platforms and it's push button escapism. And so now I have a weakened psychological immune system. And now I'm also phase three, I'm much more vulnerable towards manipulation and things like behavior modification, everything from my thoughts to my voting to my to mental illness. We've seen social contagions, the phrases of social contagions. We've seen psychiatric disorders that have been spread by influencers who are super popular influencers and are performative with their disorders. And now their followers are beginning to mimic their symptoms. And that's been a fairly recent new phenomenon that we've seen over three years. I don't know if you've read about TikTok Tourette's. They were like a handful of TikTok influencers who ostensibly had Tourette's syndrome, these young women. And I say ostensibly because I don't know if they really had Tourette's. Because, you know, when you look at social media, what's the coin of the realm in social media? It's the most over-the-top types of behavior, right? The thoughtful conversation on social media doesn't get you likes or it doesn't get you followers. So the most over-the-top people are the ones who rise to the top. So you have these influencers who are really emotive or over the top of their behaviors. And like in this Tourette's example, they got over 2 billion views. And the young teenage girls that were following these TikTok Tourette's female influencers started having arm tics and they started having verbal tics. And the one influencer was British and they started having British accented tics. And so that's called a social contagion. Consciously or unconsciously now, social media was beginning to shape some of these young women's presentation of their behavior. And I don't think they really had Tourette's disorder. I just think they were mimicking. And we've seen that with borderline personality disorder, with dissociative disorder, what we used to call multiple personality disorder. We've seen this effect really strikingly with social media. It has a very powerful shaping effect on young, vulnerable people looking for an identity. I want to go back for a second and just talk about what it is about this technology. And it makes me think about we had an addiction to, I think, to television when I was young. And I think it was definitely used in a similar way. Like you got home from school, you did your homework, you sat in front of the TV until you had dinner, and then you sat in front of the TV a longer period of time with your family. So what do you say to people that are like, yeah, this is the same kind of babysitter that we used in prior generations when we used television? What is the actual, the chemical biology of the addiction and how it's different now than, say, it was with television? So it's a little bit of a complex answer, and I'll start, I'll try to break it down. Television did have its own power. One of my intellectual heroes was a professor, Dr. Neil Postman, was an NYU professor who wrote a book in 1985, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in Amusing Ourselves to Death, Dr. Postman talked about the new digital medium, television, was going to be the soma from like Brave New World. It was going to be the new drug that we were going to be all chasing this entertainment as the entertainment was going to be the new drug. And there was some reality to that. What has changed, and this was in 1985, that was like Dynasty and Starskin Hutch. So it wasn't Grand Theft Auto and some of the immersive social media. What's qualitatively changed, and this is the number one question I get, the one that you just asked, is television back in the day that you and I watched or that you were on was a passive viewing experience. If I was watching Starsky and Hutch as a kid, the TV was 10 feet away and I was a passive viewer of that experience. Now, the two main drivers are it's immersive and interactive. If you read, watch, or listen to any review of any big budget popular game, there is one word that I bet you is going to come up more than any other description or any other comment. And that word is 
Immersive. Cyberpunk 2077? Immersive. The Last of Us? Immersive. Red Dead Redemption? You betcha. No matter where you look or who you talk to, someone, somewhere, is going to be going on about how immersive their favorite game is. So the, I'm a participant, I'm in the experience, so that has a much more powerful psychodynamic effect. So kids who are in their gaming worlds, girls who are living in social media, they're inhabitants of that world. They're not viewers of that world. So much more powerful. And then from a dopaminergic standpoint, from a digital drug standpoint, TV didn't have the really brilliant psychologists that were creating behavior mod hooks to keep people coming back for more didn't have the algorithms to curate an experience directly, specifically for you. Think about if you're a kid today. Do you mind if I ask if you have kids? I have two. I have an 11-year-old boy. He's 11 tomorrow, actually, and an 8-year-old girl. She's 8 next week. So you've got skin in the game. You're in the fight. I've got 15-year-old twin boys. So I treat 18 to 30-year-olds in a couple of different residential treatment programs that I run in the country. And we're seeing this spike in, and I'll get into personality disorders like BPD in a minute, but there's this sort of, um, call it self-centered narcissism with some of our kids. And if you think about it, imagine when, if you were growing up and I was growing up, if our digital landscape was curated, it's almost like magical thinking, it's curated for the person experiencing it. So if one of our kids is searching for a pair of sneakers and all of a sudden now, Google algorithms are sensing they're looking for sneakers materialized in their digital world. Whatever my inclination is politically, I start getting an echo chamber feedback loop of that content. So that curation effect really creates an I'm a center of the universe kind of effect with young people in a way that's really kind of hard to break them out of. So when you see a lot of younger kids who present with a sense of self-centric, egocentric, I'm the center of the universe, well, the digital world has made them that. And television never did that. Television wasn't curated for each kid. But it was curated for a certain demographic. If you looked at, let's say, TGIF, right? There was that night of family sitcom. Or even let's go to Charmed. We knew that our demographic was 18 to 34-year-old women. So the commercials, we didn't have advertisers paying to air beer commercials. Or depends for seniors, we had tampons and we had makeup and we had cover girl. So in a way, the experience of watching TV was catered to the viewer. And I think it still is. Obviously, it's not as interactive, although I think this is why people binge watch television now and not wait for the event type of TV. But when you look at any of these streaming services, you're going to get a certain quality of programming. Streaming is different, but what you're talking about broadcast television back in the day, when you were targeting a demographic, I would analogize that to using like buckshot. You're shooting at a certain broad spectrum of people versus a surgical lasered scalpel, where now the algorithm knows specifically who it's targeting in a much more precise and targeted way. So buckshot versus scalpel is very different. Streaming is interesting. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, had been a senior executive at NBC when the streaming was first developing, you know, when we used to have appointment television, when you used to watch something on, you used to have to set your schedule to watch something. And he was telling me one day in the near future, you're going to have streaming and it's going to be on demand. And so a lot of the research, and this research comes from Dr. Christakis at the University of Washington, it's the ADHD, because ADHD and impulsivity are cousins, right? So it's how much does screen time and then our immersion in screen time prime us for impulsivity and compromise our ability to delay gratification. So when you had a set appointment television, if I wanted to watch Seinfeld on Thursday night, I had to wait five days to watch Seinfeld. I couldn't just push a button and now watch any episode of Seinfeld. So there was a certain skill that I had to develop, a psychological strength that I had to develop to wait. It's called delayed gratification. And with kids, there was a famous psychologist who did the marshmallow test. They've had it on 60 Minutes. The marshmallow test was with children. They used to give the five-year-old a marshmallow in their hand, and they would say, okay, if you don't eat the marshmallow, we're going to give you two tomorrow. And no five-year-old was able to withstand impulsivity, and they would eat it. But as the kids got older, usually by around eight or nine, the frontal cortex develops, and that's where your executive functioning and your ability to consequentially think, oh, okay, if I don't eat the marshmallow now, I'm going to delay gratification and have two marshmallows tomorrow. 
We had each child on their own sit at the table at a desk with a plate and one marshmallow. They could either choose to eat the marshmallow, the one marshmallow right then and there, or they could wait until I came back into the room and have two marshmallows. I left them alone in the room for 15 minutes. Take a look. The marshmallow test has been used for decades by psychologists. It's been used with children to predict later academic success, including literacy, SAT scores, and other academic outcomes. There's no definitive answers from the marshmallow test. It's not a matter of passing or failing. What we're looking for is whether children can really resist this piece of white candy sitting in front of them that's sweet, that, you know, the smell of it, the allure of the marshmallow. And so many people, many clinicians believe that the ability to delay gratification was one of the best predictors of success in people's lives. Highly impulsive people correlate with addiction, with a lot of other clinical disorders, and it's not a very good thing to be highly impulsive. And one of the things that I write about a lot is what the digital age has done is it's primed, it's primed our kids for impulsivity at the most critical time that they're supposed to be neurophysiologically developing the neurosynapses for delayed gratification. So all of our kids now are push button, I want it now. And with Amazon and with streaming and with all of it. So our whole world now is instant gratification. So good luck now telling that kid, take a walk in the park and just watch nature or read a book that's 300 pages, which takes patience and stick and things that are really important skills that have eroded. And that's what's happened. We've eroded a lot of these skills. We've eroded our psychological immune system. So no wonder we're more unwell and more triggered and more damaged, quite honestly, when things happen, because we've been weakened by this thing that we've been swimming in, this toxic digital soup that we've been consuming and ingesting. And I don't think it started off intentionally that way, but that's why I call it like a Frankenstein monster. Dr. Frankenstein didn't want his monster to kill him eventually, but that's what happens. You lose control of it, right? You start a movement and then all of a sudden you lose control of it. You start an organism like social media and then the algorithm feeds itself. Yeah. It becomes bigger than any one person or one invention. I want to talk about some of the real world impacts from this particular mental health crisis. And in particular, obviously, because this is what our conversation is about, from social media-driven mental health challenges. What are young people facing? And as they begin to live more adult lives with more responsibility, and how is it impacting them? So one part that I guess we touched around a little bit was a person's sense of identity and their self-concept. And this could be everything from body image to more intrinsic sense of values, right? Who are you? I've written a book about ancient Greek philosophy. I'm a big believer in classical philosophy because um, it asks the big questions. Who am I? What am I here for? Helping other human beings. So now you have this shallow end of the pool thing that's driving people in a very superficial way to not only judge themselves, but to judge others. You remember 20 some odd years ago when people started blaming like fashion and Vogue magazine, Anna Winter was to blame for eating disorders, right? Heroin chic and Kate Moss was driving anorexia and bulimia. And there was some truth to that because again, we know it's called social learning theory. We as a species, we're a very profoundly social species. We learn from each other. And that's because in the early days of our evolution, the tribe survived. We weren't the strongest. We weren't the smartest. But our strength was in our community. Our strength was in the fact that we stuck together and we banded together. And that was, that's been primed into our psychological DNA. So we're very social. We need our social connection. And so we're very impressionable. And so if Vogue magazine sitting on some teenager's nightstand was able to begin to shape their own body image. And that was a static magazine sitting on a end table. Think about the 24 seven Instagram merry-go-round that's constant where you're constantly getting bombarded by either body image issues or again, idealized curated faux perfectionism. So that's going to distort not only your sense of your external physical self. that's why you have teenage girls photoshopping and airbrushing everything. But now your sense of values, what's important now? So what's important is followers, 
What's important is shallow values. It's materialism. It's not the what we would call the intrinsic values of helping another human being because a lot of our kids now value who's got the most followers. And I've raised my kids pretty, we're pretty screen cautious, my wife and I. And one of my twins is still, if we watch an old movie on YouTube, we could be watching like Citizen Kane, like a classic. First question he asks is, how many views does it have? And I'm like, who cares how many views it has? This is a classic movie. And his whole perception of whether it's going to be a good movie or not is how many people have seen it. And so it begins to kind of go, and now our value as human beings is determined by followers. So that's toxic. So that bleeds into kids' identity. And then going back to the social contagion piece, if our influences are unwell, then the followers are going to be unwell. On an overt level, what I talked about before, like TikTok Tourette's, but now we're talking about other kinds of values and behaviors. If my hero is, I don't want to mention anybody specific, but somebody who doesn't embrace healthy values or healthy lifestyle, that's going to be who I mimic. So back in the day when I wanted to be like Michael Jordan, there was a whole ad campaign. I want to be like Mike and maybe I bought those sneakers. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. You know, I write in the new book, Digital Madness, that we've always had influencers, right? We've always had movie stars and athletes and people that had influenced us, but their impact was somewhat limited because it wasn't as pervasive and invasive as it is now. So Michael Jordan was really talented at something. And still, I only saw him a couple hours a week during a Chicago Bulls game. He wasn't in my face 24-7. And so in that sense, it's much more pervasive. So our kids right now, I think, are really unwell in the sense that they haven't defined a clear sense of identity of who am I? What are my values? What do I believe in? And so I've seen and I've worked with people that because they didn't have a clear sense of core identity, if you fall down the wrong rabbit hole, if you go on 4chan into a toxic chat room, you're going to get spit out and you're going to be transformed into something very toxic. Yeah. What I do want to talk about as far as social contagion, and then we could get into that, is suicide. We hear a lot about suicide being contagious. Is that worsened by social media? Absolutely. So a social contagion, essentially, so smoking is a social contagion, right? Monkey see, monkey do. We mimic our friends. If you run with wolves, you become a wolf. That's the concept. And another social contagion, I give an example in my book, let's call it skinny dipping. 20 people go to the lake and no one wants to be the first to jump in the water, but the first person to take their clothes off and jump in the water, now they've created, they've lowered the bar of the normative experience. So now the first person makes it easier for the second person. The second person makes it easier for the third person and so on. So social contagion is norms that have been lowered by this sort of group effect. So there was a really classic suicide cluster contagion that was the in Wales, the bridge and suicides. These happened in 2012, where basically 30 kids, 30 teenagers in this small town in Wales, in Bridge and Wales, killed themselves in the 12, 14 month period. And it started with one kid and then another, and it went across gender. It went male, female. There were females that were hanging themselves, which they typically don't do. And it was a contagion and it spread. And it was a really clear example. We've had a lot of examples of that, but that was one of the most kind of pronounced. And so social media, what it does is it gives a wide, it spreads the contagion much more virally because it's one thing if you're in that small town and you're impacted by your 15 friends, but now if you're in this global digital community. So look, school shootings are social contagion. And think about what social media is. Social media, in my mind, the way I'm almost perceiving it, it's almost turned into a sentient organism. And it feeds off of our vitriolic. What feeds social media is our most extreme emotions. And then it takes our most extreme emotions, amplifies them, and it's called an extremification loop. And then it feeds us back our most vitriolic emotions so if we feed the beast and the beast feeds us and it goes round and round, it amplifies hate. It amplifies a lot of things that are very toxic that wouldn't happen if it didn't exist. It would take different type of effort to spread 
Nazism was a social contagion. But if you had social media back in 1939, it would have been quite a bit different. It took a charismatic leader, initiatives, and it took a press, and it took a populace that was vulnerable towards it. Now, we're much more ripe for those kinds of events because of social media and the spread of social media. Who is more at risk because of social media? And that could be across the board. Who are the people who are most at risk? And what can we do to reduce that risk? I'll go back to the psychological immune system, right? The kids who have the most robust psychological immune systems, the kids who have the most core sense of identity, who are very grounded in I know who I am, kids who might have the most supports in their community, the kids who have the clearest sense of their own identity, who are not going to be sort of like in the wind and getting sucked into potentially more toxic ways of viewing themselves or viewing the world. So it's really critical, to, I think, to imbue a sense of resilience and core values to our kids. I don't want my kids to learn their values from Kylie Jenner. And I don't want my kids to learn about what's right and wrong from Mr. Beast or whoever their YouTube influencer is at the moment. So let me give you the example of the kid that I was going to mention to you about that was a murder case. This year, I was an expert witness in this capital murder trial in Palm Beach County. And it was a crime was horrific. And the kid originally was 16. He was a 16-year-old white suburban kid who looked like your typical skater, surfer. And he was progressively liberal initially. And all he did 24-7 was he watched YouTube videos. And at one point, he watched a short video about the Holocaust. And because he watched the Holocaust video, the algorithm started feeding him videos about Holocaust-denying videos and white supremacy videos. YouTube could be seen as the single biggest broadcaster in the world. And there are new claims that Google's home of online videos is running ads for well-known brands alongside videos promoting Nazis, pedophilia, conspiracy theories, and North Korean propaganda. CNN reports that YouTube ran ads from large brands like Adidas, Amazon, and Hershey before videos which promoted that type of extreme content. So this sweet kid, ostensibly by all accounts, who was initially a sweet kid, started going down the rabbit hole of white supremacy. But the story doesn't end there. He then happened to watch a video about Syria and Assad. And because he watched that, he started getting ISIS content. And the FBI showed me some of this content. I mean, some of the production values of these ISIS recruitment videos are so slick. I mean, if I was a lost, drifting 16-year-old kid, I would want to sign up because it made it seem like they were about community and helping build wells. And it made it sound like Shangri-La. So now this kid starts drifting over to Islam. And then they started sending him decapitation videos. And I had to interview him in maximum security prison because he had committed one of the most horrific crimes after he got ideologically brainwashed by political YouTube videos. Because I interviewed him in prison. He'd been in prison for nine months. His trial was delayed because of COVID. And I met, like I told my wife, I think I'm going to meet like a sociopath because he essentially decapitated a 13-year-old boy at a sleepover as part of this. He wanted to kill an infidel and he tried to kill his best friend's mother and two other people. It was a horrific, we had seasoned police personnel that said this was the most horrific thing that they had ever seen. And so I'm expecting to meet Charles Manson when I have to go assess this kid in prison. And I meet this meek, sweet, hello, sir, how are you? Sit down. And we're in this little conference room in maximum security in Dade County. And I told my wife, if I didn't know better, I'd hire this kid to be a babysitter because he was soft-spoken and sweet and made eye contact. And so as I assessed him. I said, walk me through how you went from being a sweet kid who everybody said wouldn't hurt a fly to decapitating a 13-year-old because it didn't seem like he was a sociopath. And he walked me through it. He walked me through and I got it. He went from, okay, I saw that video and then I'm watching this and then I'm thinking ISIS is a good thing. And then I said, but the first decapitation video you saw, that had to be pretty. He goes, yeah, that I almost vomited. But then I felt like that was part of my training. Like if you become a Marine, you've got to get hardened. And so it's like being a medical student. And what I wrote about in my book, it is like, if you're a first-year medical student, you do cadaver work. And the first time you see a cadaver, you vomit. And by the 10th time, you're having your lunch over the cadaver because you get desensitized. So this kid got, he had seen by the time he committed these atrocities, he had seen over a thousand decapitation videos. So he had been totally desensitized to that. And the Defense was an insanity defense, insanity due to YouTube brainwashing. 
and the algorithm that kept feeding him more and more violent content. And I think there was a lot of merit to that because I think if this kid had never met YouTube, he'd still be sitting in high school and that other boy would still be alive. Not to blame, but there is something more toxic and more pernicious about what's happening. I want to talk about the social learning and mass shootings because not only does it feel like these mass shooters probably felt othered and looked at social media accounts and saw that their lives weren't as great as the people they followed and there was an othering and an aloneness, but is there a rise in mass shootings because of a social learning? Well, it's interesting because when you look at the trajectory of mass shootings in the United States, before Columbine, it was 1999. So that was really the first, let's call it digital age, school shooting. They had almost been non-existent. You had the UT Texas Tower shooting in 1966, where you had a kind of an unhinged Marine climb the Texas Tower in Austin and started taking out people. But really, between 1966 and 1999, you had yet one other Lauer mass shooting. But you had really almost no mass shootings, school shootings for 30 years. Then you had Columbine. And Columbine and the FBI, and I document this in my book, Digital Madness, they looked at it as once they put it out there into the ether, once now it was in the data sphere of social media, internet, once Klebold and Harris were the two shooters at Columbine, they became almost a digital archetype for the lost, lonely. I've worked with young men like that. These are young, empty men who feel nothing and who want some moment for their 15 minutes of being something or notoriety or what have you. A lot of young men like that who have worked with have such an empty void, they'll cut themselves or they'll burn themselves just to feel some level of sensation. They don't feel things. And so they raise the intensity of what makes them feel something. So it starts, it could start off by torturing animals. It could start off by being all sorts of something just in order to feel because they're dead and they're kind of dead inside. And I am one that says violent video games at age three does have a desensitizing effect. I don't think that's a moral panic. I think that really hypergraphic violent content has a desensitizing effect. I think our young men don't have a sense of true purpose in their lives. The 18-year-old who walked into that Texas classroom and killed 19 students and two teachers made three chilling posts on social media. The posts were on Facebook a half hour before the attack. The first read, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The other was, I shot my grandmother. And the third posted about 15 minutes before the rampage. It read, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. He'd also allegedly posted disturbing images online to Instagram prior to carrying out the attack. Traditional things that used to give women and men their sense of connectedness or the sense of purpose evaporated. So now you've got these outliers who are typically the bullied and the ones who are the outliers in their schools. They see this model. They see this, okay, so if I do what Shooter X has done, I'm going to get media notoriety. I'm going to live forever. That's another immortality play, too. It's almost like having a statue built for you. You're going to go into the pantheon of school shooters rather than being an anonymous loser that no one will ever know your name. So it's a little bit of hear me roar. But there is this weird sick community that seems to be cheering them on because they post manifestos. They live stream their crimes you know, on social media. And it just feels like it gives them more of a platform. If you go to 4chan and follow, there definitely is a community where if that didn't exist, if you didn't have these chat rooms that give community to these outliers, some might say, look, you're also giving community to other disenfranchised people that now have found community, which is a good thing. And that's true. But you're also giving community to everything from cannibals to sadists and school shooters, which now encourages them, now gives them a commonality and gives them a normalcy and gives them a little bit fuel to their fire. The Buffalo shooter clearly said that he did his shooting in Buffalo and he was influenced by social media. Every one of these young men had red flags on social media, red flags where they talked about lashing out at the society that rejects them. 
We've had serial killers in the past, but the mass shooter is more of almost like a theatrical performative piece. And really, from what I've read, they're trying to outdo each other in terms of high score. The more fatality, the grander the event. So these aren't even human beings that are now being killed. These are now, uh, it's a scorecard towards immortality. Who's the greatest mass shooter? And it's sick. And I think, you know, it is the telltale sign of a sick society. I don't think we're a well society if we're breeding school shooters at a level that we've never seen before and that no other countries have. Now, China, it's interesting that I do talk about this. China does have an epidemic of young, disenfranchised men who go into elementary schools with machetes and have started attacking children. There's been about a dozen mass stabbings in China. And these are similarly disenfranchised. You know, China's going through a very dramatic shift in their culture from an agrarian to a hyper-industrial society. So you've got these young men who feel very displaced. They don't have their little plot of land anymore. They're working at these dehumanizing factories, typically for big tech. And now they want to lash out. And the best way to lash out is society's most vulnerable, which is the elementary schools. They don't have access to guns because they're not a gun culture. So they take machetes and they've gone in and they've hacked away some of these children about a dozen times. So there's something in the ether of hyper-industrial societies that dehumanizes people to the point where they're acting out in these kinds of ways. That's what I mean where this wasn't happening when we were a more organic society living system with the way that we should be living. We've talked about a lot today, social learning, social contagions, talked about social comparison effect, impulsivity, how it seems that we are mad for our devices, the habituation, the addiction. Do you think that this should be taught in our schools? How do we protect young people? Yeah, so I think if you create social emotional learning programs where kids, again, going back to the psychological immune system, kids learn resilience, grit, how to not be impulsive, how to develop. But if there is a sex ed class, should there be a digital age ed class? But the digital age class should be like, we don't teach civics anymore. We don't teach ethics anymore. We don't teach things that help a kid develop a sense of internalized value. So now the values are being absorbed through the popular culture, which can be toxic influencers or gamers or back in, you know, public schools in the 1950s. Richard Dreyfuss went on a huge campaign a few years ago to try to teach civics in the classroom. And civics meaning I care about my fellow citizen. Those things are going to help digital citizenship. I don't know if you necessarily need a digital class, but you need a class on how to make a good human being. And if kids begin to realize how they can become good human beings, And public schools are afraid to touch that because it's considered very value-laden. And they just want to teach sex and content, but they don't want to teach things like ethics because who's ethics, right? Ethics is considered very subjective. And now you're going to get into kind of a bit of a war that way. Whose ethics are we going to teach? But at some point, who's talking to young people about right, wrong? What's your moral compass? We're assuming the families do that, but a lot of our kids don't have families that are there or stable or giving them a moral compass. Or they have to work for jobs and aren't home enough to have those conversations. Dr. K, what gives you hope? It can't get depressing talking about some of this stuff. What gives me hope is when I do see some of our young people who really get it at a grassroots level. I've seen some amazing young kids who are creative, who are compassionate, who are talented, and who have rejected the digital sheeple, who have rejected being part of the machinery of social media. And that gives me hope. What I'd like to see, and it was my sorry, not sorry statement, is to really reclaim our humanity and to not become the subjects of Zuckerberg and Gates and Bezos and Musk, you know, the opening of my book, it's a conversation with my dying father who died right before COVID, who was an old world Greek. And there's a certain, you know, he had a love of nature, grew up in the mountains of northern Greece. He had a love of cooking, he had a love of his family, he had a love of his community. He survived the Nazis during World War II. He saw his entire village get executed and he saw some pretty horrific things. But yet he, at the very end, he understood that we're not living the way humans were supposed to live. We're not living in the sense of community that we're supposed to be living anymore. We've been too separated and digitized and distracted by our digital candy. And my father would look at me before he died and shake his head. And he would say, Nico, this is not the way human beings were supposed to live. And I would be like, oh, but there were a lot of wisdom 
in his words and my mother's words from a prior time. And I don't want to sound like one of these, the grass was always greener because there were some horrible things that happened decades ago. As we know, we needed certain movements to create change, but there was also a humanity that I think we've lost, that I think has eroded, that if we can keep our tech and reclaim our humanity somehow, that gives me hope. Well, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for what you do, too. Teenagers are using social media in a plethora of really positive ways. There are groups, there are clubs out there to address anything that a teen has interest with. I see a lot of kids facing challenges with depression, anxiety, and they're able to connect. I think it's incredibly important that we're using social media appropriately. We're seeing teens architect their Instagram photos using filters to create images that are not aligned with who they really are, but they're generating likes. It's a social currency and it's addictive. Sometimes teens make bad decisions and they can post things on social media that they don't realize that that exists forever. As adults, you know, employers look at social media and what are you posting on there? Kids aren't thinking about those kinds of things. So we do want to supervise our our child's social media usage, simply asking them what their social media represents, the values that they want represented, and to ask them about the content that they post. You know, why is it important? You know, what what's interesting about it? Coming from a place of genuine, authentic Um, interest, right? Not concern, just interest. We start that conversation, we keep it open-ended, we keep it consistent, we check in often, and we invite that conversation. Social media has so much potential to help our world connect and evolve. And instead, it's been hijacked by the lowest elements in human culture, those who would lie, exploit, and endanger for personal gain or gratification. And those who are intent on profiting from those lies, those exploitations, and those endangerments. Alyssa's kids are getting to the age where they're going to want social media before too many years go by. And, you know, Alyssa and I were talking about this, and honestly, she doesn't know what to do about it. What we do know is that we can't allow these companies to continue to operate unchecked. We can't allow corporations to have so much power over us and so little care for the consequences of what they do with that power. We can't let our kids grow up to be infected by the evils that are already overwhelming social media. We need government to step in and seriously regulate this industry before it's done too much harm to recover from. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not.